Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. As many of you are aware, the ISSB, or International Sustainability Standards Board, recently delivered a set of proposed standards that would start a global baseline for sustainability disclosures. U.S. companies have been focused on the impact of the SEC's climate disclosure proposal, but this is another one you need to pay attention to. Most every like broad accounting question you would ever ask for the financial statements has some relevance to sustainability reporting. Returning to the podcast today is Andrea Sol, a partner in PwC's national office. Andreas is known to many of you as a frequent guest on the podcast and webcast, focusing on different areas related to ESG and standard studying. In addition, as of July 1, Andreas is leading our sustainability topic team for the PwC Global Network, so he has a great global perspective to share with us. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. So, Andreas, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. And looking forward to our conversation, digging in a little bit more into one of the three legs of the sort of three reporting proposals we have out there. So, for our frequent listeners, you may remember that we did a comparison episode that talked about the proposals coming out of the SEC, the International Sustainability Standards Board, and then as well as the proposed rules coming out of Europe. But today we're actually going to dive deeper and really focus in on the proposals that we've seen from the ISSB. So Andreas, maybe just to give us a little bit of background, can you remind our listeners exactly what the ISSB is and where we are in terms of standards proposals? Sure. So the ISSB is the International Sustainability Standards Board. It's a newly formed board. They've actually been adding most of the board members over the last uh, six to eight weeks, and they now have, I think, substantially all of the board is is in place. Um, It is the sister board to the IASB, which promulgates the international accounting standards. And so they both sit under the foundation, and the idea is that there's certainly synergy between the uh, between the two of them, that was kind of the value proposition for setting up this board when we already have lots of people in the standard setting arena around um, around sustainability standards. Um, the other thing is that they merged with um, one organization um, focused on climate specifically, uh, I don't know, about six, eight weeks ago, and then in August, August 1st, I guess it is, they will be merging with the Value Reporting Foundation, which is the organization that previously housed the SASB and the uh, IIRC. So we're starting to shrink down the alphabet soup that we've, uh, that we've talked about in the, uh, in the past. And so the, the thing that they've done at this point is that they have published two exposure drafts. Um, they're open for comment until I guess the end of this week, so um, a little late to comment at this point if you haven't started yet, but one is a, a general standard, and then the second one is specific to climate. All right. And then, Andreas, um, it's interesting. You made that comment about the consolidation of the alphabet soup. And I was thinking even a year ago, we may not have predicted all of the consolidation that occurred. Uh, So this is interesting. But one other thing that you said that stood out to me is sort of this idea of synergy between the ISSB and IASB. Do we know yet how those boards will be working together or too soon to tell? 
Well, the, there are some governance um, agreements that have been put in place around how they have periodic meetings of the of the chairs and of the uh, the technical directors. Um, and certainly the IASB has some things on their list of topics that they're thinking about related to uh, sustainability. So there, there will be ample opportunities for them to uh, collaborate. But since the ISSB had their very first board meeting um, last week, um, you know, they're just getting started in terms of setting up their, their, their processes and the like. All right. So definitely more to come on that. And then, Andreas, probably the other thing, the question we always get is why should this U.S. audience, mostly U.S. audience, care about that or care in general about the ISSB? Yeah. So I, I think you could probably expand that to why why anyone would at this stage, because, <laughs> you know, the reality is that uh, the ISSB standards are currently not required to be applied anywhere. Um, now that is expected to uh, to change at some point down the road. So in their in their proposed document, the uh, the, the SEC asked a question around to what extent should uh, ISSB based reporting be allowed um, to meet the the requirements of whatever climate rule they end up uh, putting in place after they finish their process. Um, I think if you talk to the folks at the ISSB, what they would say their primary objective is, is to create sort of a global baseline standard that all territories could use. And then to the extent that they wanted to add additional requirements over and above what the uh, what the ISSB requires, that that would be permitted. But that in order to have a level of comparability across all geographies, which the user community has said is very important, no different than in the in the accounting world where we've tried to minimize differences between US GAAP and IFRS because that's what users have told us um, you know is is helpful but also takes costs out of the system there's a view that the same thing is going to be in play with uh, with sustainability so they're trying to bring some order to uh, you know the the various initiatives in various uh, geographies and Andreas, on that point, it's interesting, um, Valerie Weeman and I recorded a podcast talking about the responses at a high level to the SEC's proposal. But one consistent theme we saw was that anyone who commented on this idea of international, there was strong support for this idea of the ISSB. And I think being able to use the ISSB standards potentially to meet some of these other reporting requirements, because to your point, from both an investor and a reporter perspective, consistent standards, you know, reduce costs, effort and everything else. So I do think it'll be interesting to see what the SEC specifically does from an equivalency perspective, and then whether or not, if assuming the ISSB standards are deemed to be equivalent, at least for some portion, whether that'll be permitted for FPIs only, or also, you know, US multinationals, because I know that's a key point that you in particular have been focused on. All right, so let's, um, I have some more general questions, but I think for the purposes of this podcast, let's dig into some of these actual proposals, and then we can come back and talk a little more broadly again. So specifically, you mentioned that there were two exposure drafts. And so let's start with the first one, which is what's called so-called general requirements. And what would you describe as sort of the goal of that proposal? And then what would be included in there? 
Yeah, so this one is sort of, I'll call it the cross-cutting standard, and then they've issued the second one on climate, and I think the idea is down the road they will issue additional thematic standards on additional um, key topics. But for the moment, what this one is intended to do is it's intended to cover everything else that, in the words of the standard, that's significant related to sustainability, other than climate, because there's a specific climate uh, exposure draft. And so... The scope of this is potentially very broad, and I suspect they'll get some feedback in the comment letter process that they do need to somehow put some fences around what they what they want or maybe better define what the term significant means. But it, in theory, covers any sustainability topic other than climate. And then it also has some general requirements, what I would call more like the, uh, you know, the infrastructure of the uh, of the standards dealing with things like um, what happens when you have a change in estimate? How do you uh, how do you treat that, for example? So some, some of the things you if you're familiar with IFRS, you find in uh, IS1 or IS, uh, IS8. So, Andreas, one of the things I know is near and near, dear to your heart, because coming from a valuation perspective, is the fact that the this general requirements exposure draft directly links into enterprise value as you're thinking about these different metrics and disclosures. What can you what can you share with our listeners about that? I think the first thing I would say is I think the document, once you take out sort of cover pages and table of contents, is 50-ish pages. And if you uh, do a word search on enterprise value, I think it comes up 40 times or something like that. So it, it, it <laughs> definitely is maybe a theme. The, it's definitely a theme. Um, and so there's clearly this focus on what's relevant or should be reported in the eyes of the ISSB is anything that would have a, a material impact on a user, and users here sort of being defined similar to the user financial statements, so sort of investors and, uh, and creditors, um, that they would find would be relevant or material to um, enterprise value, or as they phrase it in other parts of the standard, you know, things that would maybe change your view on the future cash flows of the, uh, of the entity. So, Andreas, I think that's a good segue into the other proposal, the climate proposal. What are some of the key goals you see and how does the TCFD, you know, foundation fit in there? I guess I would say the first thing on the climate standard is that it heavily leverages TCFD, which I know a lot of companies are familiar with since many already report under TS TCFD to some degree, um, which definitely positions you well to adopt these standards in, in the future. The one thing I would note, though, is that uh, it, it does build on TCFD. So TCFD is clearly in the document, but it definitely has um, requirements over and above TCFD. And we'll get into some of those as we uh, as we as we go through. Um, but consistent with TCFD, there's a focus on risks and opportunities. Now, if I think if you go through the text, there's a bit more on risks, um, probably because if you just think about um, users' perspective on this. They are worried about uh, risks maybe a bit more than opportunities, but there's clearly an emphasis that to the extent there are opportunities, um, that you should be, you know, you should be addressing those in, uh, in, in your disclosure. 
So Andreas, this is one of the things that I found of, of note, because if you look at the SEC proposal, we see similar reference, physical risks, transition risks, but then the SEC does propose that the opportunities discussion would be voluntary. Uh, I will say in our comment letter, we recommended, at least in the fore part of the document, that you present opportunities because of consistency with TCFD, and as well as I think just to give a more balanced sense. So that's clearly something we saw here. Anything else big, though, that stands out in terms of the definitions of risks or how, you know, how they're being thought about between, well, just focused on the ISSB proposal? Um, I don't think so. It's similar to the SEC proposal that it talks about physical risks. So think about that as sort of the risk that one of your facilities gets flooded or damaged in a storm versus transition risks, which is probably the thing that in many cases is, uh, is a bit more difficult to get your arms around. But it's the idea that as the broader economy transitions to a less carbon intensive um, model, you know, what does that mean for your company? Are you going to have to fundamentally redesign your processes, how you make your product, maybe redesign your product, maybe make some real changes to your supply chain? The, the, those are the kinds of things that uh, that TCFD and the and the ISSB exposure draft are are very focused on. And then you know, consistent with this theme of sort of managing that transition, there may be. Um, there may be opportunities there. So if you're farther ahead in this process than some of your competitors, that may allow you to win some business when some of the uh, you know some of the customers in your in your sector start to say, well, hey, we're going to start to take into account in our in our uh, procurement um, strategy. You know, their own ESG strategy might be to refine their procurement process, and therefore we're going to advantage any any suppliers that uh, you know are further along in the journey to net zero or whatever the in, in your specific industry whatever the sustainability targets are that uh, you know people are, are are working towards and then andreas maybe shifting to governance i think this one is interesting because it's to your point earlier it is one of the places that the uh, disclosure requirements go beyond TCFD, although I definitely do see some similarities here with the SEC proposal, but what is proposed in these rules? Yeah, I think what they're really trying to get at, and I think you see this in the SEC proposal and the EU proposal as well, right, is this idea that they really want you to communicate to your to the user community how this is being overseen, sort of like which function or person in the organization is responsible for managing this this process, particularly the, the transition piece, you know, who's setting the strategy, who's setting the targets, who's measuring whether those targets are or are not being met, who's being held accountable if they're if they're not, what kind of controls are there around not only the the the, the numbers that are being tabulated to to measure progress, but also just overall whether the strategy is is sort of working as uh, as planned and whether it's on on schedule. So there's a lot of seeking transparency around how all of that will will work. That's really, I'd say, at the at the at its core, what what the requirements in this area are are about. All right, and then how about in the area of strategy? You touched a little bit on this, but I do think in some ways this also goes back to your enterprise value point. So at least worth talking about. 
Yeah, so I think strategy is sort of similar. It's it's about transparency on, you know, lots of companies are saying, hey, we're going to make our business more sustainable and we're going to get to net zero at some point in the future. Maybe they've been very specific about when that is, maybe not. But not a lot of companies to this point have articulated very, you know, clearly how exactly they're going to get there. You know, am I going to I said, like fundamentally redesign my supply chain, my product, my my manufacturing process, or am I going to try to get there by buying credits and offsets because I haven't quite figured out yet how to do that? Or maybe I'm in an industry such as, uh, you know, such as airlines, where it might be very challenging based on current technology to get to net zero. So I may have to do something else until, you know, more carbon neutral um airplanes are available to be uh, to be purchased right so but just this idea that we want you to be more clear on what is your plan and how are you going to get there and then you know start to have and this maybe segue to the next section but start to have targets that you know users can monitor then whether you are or not meeting those to sort of evidence that the strategy that you've laid out is actually, you know, being implemented in the in the real world. And Andreas, one of the things we've talked about when we talked about the European proposal is the fact that it is really intended to drive behavioral change that's beyond a disclosure regime. And part of the way it is doing that is by requiring disclosure of things like strategy and targets. I know we haven't started talking about targets here yet, but would you say the ISSB is in the same vein or sort of one step less than that and maybe one step closer to the SEC proposal, which is really more intended if you're doing this, report it? Yeah, so it, it is neutral, I would say, in the sense that this is about providing um, providing information um, as opposed to having a explicit outcome um, in mind. So, for example, you don't have to have a target but if you don't, you you know, there's a lot of things in here that will make it very clear that you don't. And, <laughs> and also, I would say you probably have an obligation to say, well, how is not having a target, you know, not a kind of a long term business problem, just giving the direction that customer preferences are going, regulation is going, just general societal demands are going. And so I, I suspect at the end of the day, maybe it's not as different as as people uh, think, because the more of this information you're going to have to disclose, the more even investors, not talking about NGOs here, but even just investors are going to start to ask some questions. If you know, if you really have to be transparent, that there isn't much of a plan at this point. I think there's going to be a lot of questions coming from investors saying, "Well, how's that going to work?" And you know, again, I think the because it's ultimately linked to enterprise value, you can make the argument that at some point, if you fall too far behind others in your others in your industry, that there will be an enterprise value impact to that at some point um, in the future. And I think that's maybe one of the critical things. Like, there's this concept of does it have an impact on enterprise value, like right this moment? And you know, in some industries, you might argue that the effects of this are far enough in the future that once you discount cash flows back, that maybe there's not that big of an impact now. But then I think there's also this concept of, well, but if it could en- impact your enterprise value in the future, investors still uh, still care about that. So that's something that probably still is in the scope. That's something we have in our comment letter to say they need to be a little clearer about that. But it, 
certainly seems that the intent is that they want you to capture things that are relevant to enterprise value now and might be relevant to enterprise value in the uh, in the future as well. So Andreas, I, I want to get back to some of what's required to be disclosed for targets, but a question for you, and let me see if I can ask this properly. So if we think about the proposals, the three proposals, and talk about materiality, if you look at the SEC proposals, very clear, it's based on financial statement materiality. I think it's very clear if you look at the CSRD proposal, the European proposal, that that's based on this concept of double materiality, which is sort of the industry, the company's impact on its environment and, and vice versa. Now, if I look at the ISSB proposal and this concept of enterprise, enterprise value, it almost feels like to some extent pulling both of those together because there is some element of what I'm doing to address climate or, or other types of changes ultimately is going to be impacting my company's value. Now, I may not have articulated that correctly, but I know from your valuation perspective, you can probably pull together what I was just asking. Yeah, so I think I think the idea is that many folks, and certainly in the valuation profession, think that you know if something is really relevant to significant stakeholders, so employees, customers, um, that eventually that's going to make its way into your into your business and therefore impact cash flows and be material to your enterprise value. Now, again, it might not be right this second. It may be a few years down the road, but that's where this idea of enterprise value today versus in the future um, kind of matters. But you know, I think the, the way I kind of try to articulate this to people is if, uh, if you think about your business as a collection of assets, right, and you start to say, well, one of my key assets is my brand. Well, if I think that doing well on ESG, not just climate, but all of the dimensions of ESG, if I think doing well on those topics um, would enhance my brand, well, then it's relevant to enterprise value. If on the other hand, I said, hey, if I maybe am not at the leading edge of this, would that potentially damage my brand? Well, that also would be enterprise value relevant because if the value of your brand, which for many companies is one of their most significant assets, even if it's not on the books, because um, <laughs> this is not a you know accounting focused exercise that they're doing here. That if that value that asset changes in a meaningful way because of how you manage this major business issue, then it's enterprise value relevant. So often it's more helpful in my mind to think about it through the lens of what does this do to your assets as opposed to you know, enterprise value traditionally being defined as adding together sort of the market capitalization of your equity and the fair value of your debt, which is a bit more of a, I don't know, maybe an abstract kind of, uh, kind of concept. So that's kind of the way I try to think about it. And I think that resonates with people because you can more directly see how business decisions would affect a brand, say, or affect you know, your, your human capital assets, then uh, how does it affect your stock price? Well, and Andres, not to enter into debate about uh, unrecorded, internally developed intangible assets, your point when you were talking about adding together all your assets, just to reiterate, included those unrecorded assets. So this is not an accounting exercise. This is truly, if I look at the value of my company, how does it all fit together? That's right. 
All right. So, and again, we kind of digressed because we were specifically talking about the climate proposal. And I think the point you're making here is this actually isn't just climate, it's other aspects. And that would go back, I think, more so to this general proposal. But I do think it's an important concept. And again, a place where maybe superficially, these proposals look a little different. But as you start to think about some of these valuation aspects, maybe some of the requirements aren't necessarily so different. But Andreas, going is that fair? You not <laughs> so? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, I think that's fair. Okay, so then Andreas, let's go back then to the specific requirements, and, we, and we've jumped around a little bit, but we were talking about targets, uh, and so why don't are can you just give us some high level what types of information companies would be required to disclose, assuming that you know they've talked about their strategy and now that they have specific targets, what would you need to disclose? Yeah, so the, the, the documents envision that there are cross cross uh, sort of cross industry or cross sector metrics, and then that there will be industry based metrics. And then there's sort of a, I call it a catch all, which is sort of a, if there's something else that management, um, you know, thinks is important, i.e., it's something that they're specifically tracking or is, is a, something that's explicitly part of their, their strategy. Um, that that should be uh, that should be captured as well. There there is a little bit of this um, I'll call it management lens type perspective to uh, to the document. We even our comment letter suggested that they might want to enhance that because it might help with this uh, with the open ended nature of uh, of particularly the the general standard. Where back to the earlier comment that mm-hmm. it captures lots of different things potentially that you somehow have to figure out how to put a put a fence around that um so so yeah it envisions that there'd be sort of metrics that cover that are relevant to every industry so the classic one being you know the the greenhouse gas emissions where it requires scope one two and three which is a little different than uh you know some of the other uh, some of the other frameworks where where scope three is uh, optional or in the case of the european proposal you have extra extra time um there's there's some things around transition risks um you know so you're trying to capture like how much of your asset base is exposed and uh you know how at risk um is it so i think in a lot of these cases maybe different than the european proposal where they specifically tell you a lot of the metrics i think that the the issb proposal is more about like describing what they want and not as specific as and this is the exact thing you need to disclose other than other than the greenhouse gas emissions which are you know relatively well defined because people have been doing that um, for a while um, and they're reported for a number of for, for a number of other other purposes um, Another idea that's in there is this idea of like intensity, right? So how significant are your emissions relative to your asset base and to your to your revenues? Um, so that that that's another concept um, that's that's in there. Um, this idea of again for physical risks and transition risks, you know, sort of trying to get a handle on like what percentage or what types of assets are 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 impacted by uh by those um there's some things around sort of capital deployment so one of the one of the key things i think that the document is trying to capture is you know how does this affect 
your capital deployment in the future? And is are you going to need to, are there going to be like significant CapEx in order to manage these transition risks or manage whatever change in the business model needs to happen to it to adopt a you know particularly in the climate change area but i think you can see this applying in other areas as well i think the difference maybe is that for many companies um, getting to net zero or something of, of that nature in the climate area probably does involve spending money which is a little different than if you think about maybe some of the the uh the S and the G topics where you'd say, well, hey, if I want to make my board more diverse, there isn't like a CapEx associated with uh, mm-hmm. with that. So um, it's a little harder to fit into that, uh, into that framework. So you have to probably come up with a different kind of, uh, a different kind of metric. Um, I have some things in there similar to the SEC proposal where there's a, there's this idea that if the company has internal carbon pricing um, that it uses for transactions between business units or divisions that uh, there, there's some there's some requirements around that you know some companies do that currently I don't know that it's that widely um, adopted and then the last one is and we're seeing more and more of this now where um, ESG type targets are making their way into executive comp arrangements. Um, so that will certainly probably have some level of transparency under existing, not only accounting standards, but lots of jurisdictions around the world have, including the SEC, have fairly robust requirements to disclose how executive comp works and what the targets are and who sets them and things like that. But now that we're starting to see ESG specific targets make their way into these plans, you know, the ISSB has some specific you know, requirements there around. Uh, again, that would that's not really sector um, sector specific. So, Andres, uh, I want to come back to GHG, but let's dig a little bit for a moment into industry metrics, which you did mention, and I think this is one of the places. You know, this is interesting. Because we don't see um, the industry metrics proposed in SEC, and then we are expecting potentially to see some under the CSRD proposals, but we we don't see those yet. But as you mentioned very early on in this podcast, because the ISSB has, um, I guess, consolidated with the SASB, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right word there, yep. uh, they do have sort of in their lexicon a huge library of industry disclosures. And I think, you know, as we've looked at them, there's inconsistencies across industries. They don't all include climate, like a a lot of, a number of issues like that. But that said, how does the ISSB proposal propose that that those are incorporated? Yeah, they, they, they walk a bit of a fine line. So they clearly say, look, users care about sector level information. And certainly if you think about climate, some sectors, I already mentioned airlines, you're, you know, all too well about utilities are more impacted than, I don't know, like a consulting firm. Um, So, so there is this idea that, well, in addition to these things that apply to everyone, that there might be specific things that are of greater or lesser importance, depending upon what sector you're in. And that, I think that's the whole value proposition of them, uh, consolidating with the Value Reporting Foundation, i.e. The, 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 the SASB, which has all of this detailed um, sector guidance. I, so they, they've kind of put some language in there that 
sort of strongly encourages you to at least look at that guidance if you're thinking about um, presenting a complete picture, which they say in many cases will require some level of sector um, specific information. Um, but it's not outright mandated as, as we read the document at, at this point. I think part of the reason for that is some of the things you, uh, you know, you described. So like if the climate standards sent you to the SASB standards, that would be a problem because of the 77 um, SASB standards. I think only 50 or so of them um, address climate and it's, well, certainly there's more on climate in some of the most climate impacted standard uh, sectors. You know, there's, there's other sectors. You know, if you take pharmaceuticals, which manufacture chemicals at the end of the day, <laughs> there's not really much in there at all around climate. Whereas if you looked at the chemical industry, there's quite a bit, uh, you know, there's quite a bit more. So there's some things like that, that I think need to be need to be sorted out before you move to a you must apply these standards if you're going to apply the ISSB in its uh, in its totality, which I think we, we, we might have missed that point. I think one of the critical things that's in the ISSB standards is that if you want to say you're applying them, you need to apply all the provisions. So similar to way like US GAAP and IFRS work that you can't do piecemeal which is different than the way many people have applied SASB or other um, other sustainability standards in the past, where they've just picked the pieces that they thought were most interesting, most relevant, that users told them they wanted to know. Um, now, if you want to say, you know, that this report is in compliance with the ISSB standards, you have to apply everything, which is why this question of to what extent do you need to apply the SASB guidance is so crucial because if you said you did have to apply it all, then you literally have to apply it all, which is, um, you know, not, not the way most people have applied those standards in the, in the past. Yeah. I think that's a great reminder, Andreas. So let me then go back to greenhouse gas disclosures and one, one key thing, because we did mention scope three before. So from an SEC perspective, small reporting companies won't need to disclose scope three, as well as you will only be required to disclose scope three if you have a target that encompasses scope three or if it's material to you. And, and then if it is, you have to disclose all the categories. So each of these proposals is a little different, but I think there's some bigger differences we probably want to highlight here about the GHG disclosures under the ISSB. So what are some of the things that stand out for you, Andreas? And I'll give you a hint. I'm hoping you're going to talk about organizational <laughs> boundaries if you want yeah. to start with that. And then I know there's more. So. so organizational boundary, kind of a clunky standard setter sort of term that we throw around. But basically, that means um, which legal entities are within the scope of your reporting. So in GAAP, that's anything that you control is consolidated and included in your financial statements. So the, in the ESG space, a lot of people refer to that as organizational boundary. Um, so the way the ISSB works is that for all the requirements other than greenhouse gas emissions, you apply the same reporting boundary that you would for for your financial statements. So whatever entities are consolidated for your financial statements, you would include the diversity statistics and any of, any of these other cross-cutting metrics we described um, within your ISSB compliant sustainability um, report. The only exception to that is the um, greenhouse gas emissions where they say you can apply the greenhouse gas protocol. And the greenhouse gas protocol has 
multiple ways to determine the organizational boundary. One is to follow the financial statement boundary, um, but they also have an idea of operational control, which is uh, which is different, particularly if you have things like leased assets. So that, that that's a that's a fundamental difference. Um, there's also some guidance about how you handle um, sort of non-controlled entities. So think about it as joint ventures or other equity method. You know, should you sort of like pick up your proportion? So if you own 25% of a joint venture, does that mean you should pick up 25% of the emissions or should you do something different? The, the document's a little unclear because they use terms like controlled joint venture, which you know, is kind of an oxymoron. You either right. control it or it's a joint venture. But, but in any case, um, so there's some things there that probably need to be cleaned up. But um, that that conceptually is is sort of the uh, the, the other broad um, broad area. So then, yes, unlike the SEC proposal, scope three is in is uh, is required. Um, I I think what this is sort of a symptom of is probably the most challenging issue in this whole document. Well, maybe the second most material is probably the most challenging, <laughs> probably the second most challenging. And we have this issue with the SEC document and we really have it with the uh, with the EU proposal is this idea of like, what do you need to report related to the value chain? Because at the highest level, everyone knows we have to be careful that if you have a company that has like lots of emissions, and you just say, oh, well, why don't I just sell the plants that mm-hmm. uh, have all the emissions and then I'll just buy all the output from uh, from whoever I sell that to. <laughs> Maybe that's a private company. They don't report. And now my emissions go down that obviously if you were to do that, that there'd have to be all sorts of transparency that, well, in terms of the ecosystem of your product, you haven't really reduced the emissions. Right. But. The question is like, how much farther do you go than than that? You know, if you, do you have to go back to your supplier, 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 and say, you know, what are their labor practices? What are their emissions in however they're extracting some metal in the Congo, or you know, all, all of those kinds of things? You know, how far do you need to go, and what lens do you apply to figuring out like what is significant? You know, I think there's, I think most people would agree there's a difference that. If there's a mine somewhere and you're buying 50% of the output, that's not the same as you're one of 10,000 companies that buy uh, output from that uh, mine. So, um, or maybe the other example we've used is, you know, if you provide a critical piece of equipment that is used to extract fossil fuels, you probably need more disclosures around what happens downstream with your product than if you're a billing software company and fossil fuel companies happen to buy your your software right so that this idea that somehow you need to be able to capture and it's not just for greenhouse gas emissions although i suspect that's just because of how public and visible those number those 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 particular figures are there'll be more attention there but just this idea of how do you determine what i do i disclose and what don't i with respect to the value chain otherwise people are going to be disclosing a phone book and that's back to the earlier discussion on cost doesn't do anyone any any good if preparers and users have to work through you know thousands of pages of extraneous data to really get at what are the things that really uh, really matter in the in the value chain? 
All right. I think that's helpful. And again, good context, Andreas, for people thinking about these different proposals. So definitely a lot more we could talk about, but a couple of final items to focus in on. I think first would be assurance or attestation. And again, this is a place where from the SEC perspective, we see that there's going to be footnote disclosures that will be subject to the financial statement audit and management's internal control over financial reporting. And then for large accelerated and accelerated filers, there's a delay, but scope one and scope two will be subject to an attestation. What types of assurance or attestation are associated with these ISSB proposals? Well, so at, at the end of the day, right, the attestation requirements are going to be set by whichever jurisdiction um, requires or permits companies to report under uh, under the ISSB standards. I think the, the key thing is the point we made earlier that um, it's sort of an all or nothing. You either apply these standards in their totality or you or you don't. Um, yeah, there is sort of this provision in there that uh, that I, again I think will attract a lot of comments around what do you do if uh, you know if a particular jurisdiction explicitly requires or prohibits the disclosure of something that's in the uh, in the standards? How, how does that impact your ability to say that you're uh, that you're in compliance? Um, so I think that will that will likely require some work, and I think I think it's kind of the same thing with timing. There is some guidance in there on timing, but I think ultimately the timing will largely be determined by whichever jurisdictions again require or uh, permit um, these standards to be to be used. All right, that's helpful. Then Andreas. I have a final question on a pet issue of yours that I want to get to. But before I ask that one, anything else that stands out for you on these proposals that you would highlight? Well, we, we didn't talk about materiality, which you could probably devote a whole podcast to. Yes. So maybe just very quickly, right? Um, so this is an investor materiality perspective. It's not double materiality like the EU is proposing, although the the ISSB is working with GRI, which the GRI standards many people may know does have this concept of double materiality. So materiality, not just to investors, but to a broader set of stakeholders. Um, I, I think the challenge is because the way the document is written with this focus on cash flows and enterprise value, that determining materiality may be challenging in some cases. So you go back to my my board diversity um, example, right, where a lot of users would say, well, actually, we think diversity is a good thing, not just from a moral or social perspective, but we think that uh, you know more diverse boards generally make better decisions and, and the like. But quantifying that, both the cost of making your board more diverse and the benefits in a like in a cash flow model would be extraordinarily difficult. And so you get into this, well, how do you assess materiality for something like that where you could argue, well, if I don't think it has a meaningful impact on cash flows, even though it might be a good thing, um, does that mean I don't need to disclose it? And I don't think that's what they mean, but coming up with the right words to capture that um, is, is, I think, probably one of the, the challenges we're going to have to deal with over the next, uh, over the next couple of months. Well, definitely will be interesting to see the comment letters on uh, this proposal and especially overlap or differences from what we've seen with the SEC comment letters. So Andreas, last point, and this is actually going all the way back to the beginning of the podcast where we talked about the interaction between the IASB 
and the ISSB. And we were talking about it from the direction of the ISSB, but I do think there's a key point here that is at least worth teeing up and we'll probably talk about more in another podcast about the intersection of all of these proposals with financial reporting and the fact that even putting aside climate and other reporting, there are considerations for standard setters from a financial reporting point of view. So I know you have a few good examples you could share. And then, like I said, just want to plant the seed with our listeners. And it's something we can talk about more in future podcasts. Yeah. So I think the way I would describe it is most every like broad accounting question you would ever ask for the financial statements has some relevance to, uh, to sustainability reporting. So maybe just two examples, right? So if I were to plan to dispose a business, well, in the financial statements, if it meets certain criteria, you present it as discontinued. So you effectively, you know, pull it out of your uh, results and compress it down in the into one line on the balance sheet in the P&L. Um, it sure seems like that if you had an accompanying ESG report that's got the same organizational boundaries we talked about a minute ago, that you would somehow have to do something to reflect the fact that, hey, going forward, our organizational boundary is going to be different because we're going to have this major divestiture and we want to do something with our presentation that reflects that. Now, you can't easily do the compress it into one number because maybe the biggest difference between sustainability reporting and, and, and accounting is that accounting all nets down to net income <laughs> and equity, but like you can't net ESG reporting down to one number. Like you can't add your greenhouse gas emissions and your, uh, and your diversity statistics and something about, you know, child labor and your supply chain and net that all down to a number. So, like you can't do that collapsed presentation, but maybe you can do something else, maybe similar to what one does with a significant joint venture that you don't have it in all your consolidated assets and liabilities. But what you have it is you have a footnote that says, hey, here's the key metrics for a, a joint venture. And maybe you do something like that. So that that would be one example. The, the other example is. You know, we talked earlier about that lots of companies are in the in the short term at least using the purchase of offsets as the way to manage down their uh, their gross emissions to a lower net number and so you get into this question of okay well for accounting purposes and there is no gap right now so <laughs> so so bear with me but if i buy offsets there's a cash cost to that now, at some point, that, that cash cost of the offset is going to have to hit the P&L. Now, in your ESG reporting, most companies are going to be required under these three, uh, these three different uh, regulatory regimes to disclose sort of gross emissions, offsets and credits, and net emissions. So the question will be, if I'm reporting under, say, 2022, and I um, say, hey, I had 100 of emissions. I plan to purchase 20 of offsets and therefore have net emissions of 80. I think a lot of companies currently, when they have that reporting, they would include that 20 of offsets, even if they purchased the offsets early in 2023 and maybe didn't retire them until sometime later in the year in 2023. Now, for gap purposes, you wouldn't be able to record a expense in 2022 <laughs> for offsets that you purchased in say February of 23 and retired in July of 23. Um, 
it's kind of hard to imagine that that's no pun intended sustainable long term <laughs> right that you'd say i have the benefit in my sustainability reporting of the offsets in 22 but the expense doesn't hit my PL until some future period but that's a good example of you probably want the same quote unquote accounting model for the offsets in terms of when does it hit the PL, the expense and when do you book the benefit um, in your in your sustainability reporting, and there's lots more examples, but I think those two sort of capture the the, the state of affairs. Yep, and that definitely um, did what I was hoping to accomplish, which was just to plant the seed with people that these are issues we're going to need to start thinking about and talking about. So definitely more to come from us. And the other thing that stood out to me there, Andreas, is when you said we right now we can't net these all down to one number, and I I feel like that could be something for your valuation colleagues to figure out a way to convert all of these different metrics so they could be net down. So maybe in a future podcast we'll be coming back to us with that. So. Yep. All right. Well, Andreas, as always, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate all the insight. Thanks. That does it for today. Join me back here next week for new podcast episodes. On Tuesday, we'll be continuing our toolkit series focused on compensation. And we'll have another special sector focused Wednesday episode for you. As I mentioned yesterday, on Thursdays, we'll be taking a summer break for the month of August, which will give us time to gear up for what promises to be a very busy fall, focused not only on current ESG reporting activity, but also more content to help you stay ahead of what's next. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.